growing up as a kid, I never really got into professional wrestling. My sister got into it. In fact, she had a tag team group called the Bushwhackers. That was her favorite group. In fact, the Bushwhackers had this, this thing that they would do with their arms when they would walk into the arena, setting the tone that they were ready to dominate whoever came their way. If you've ever watched tag team wrestling, it is kind of fun to watch. You'll have two guys who are wrestling and duking it out in the middle. And then once one of them gets tired, he'll go out and tag his partner who will then jump in the ring and take a turn and they'll go at it for a while. And there's a back and forth. There's a, a drama and a, and a fun a combativeness that takes place there in the arena. Well, what's interesting in Mark chapter 12, we see where Jesus is in the middle of a tag team match. These different political and religious power groups keep coming to Jesus wave after wave, trying to take him down. They're trying to take on Jesus, to trip him up in his words, to trap him in what he says so that they can try and undercut him for who he is. You see, as Jesus is encountering these different groups that are coming after him, he responds by humbling them, teaching them the truth, and then ultimately teaching this reality. For all who call upon Jesus, you are raised to life and called to love. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. As a faith family, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark together in this rich, uh, fast-paced, hard-hitting book in which John Mark is pointing us to Jesus and how he is at work. Jesus is the one who has healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons. He has walked on water and multiplied food. He has taught with clarity and with authority. We see throughout this gospel that indeed Jesus is on the move. But you want some encouraging news, church. Jesus is on the move even today. He's on the move in and through you and all over the world. One of the things we've been doing lately as a faith family is passing out these gift cards, not for you, but for someone else through you. This gift card initiative of Share the Love has been a way for us to show the community that yes, Westwood loves you, but Jesus loves you more. And I've heard just great stories of how the Lord has used this, used this ministry and used you to impact people for Jesus. I got this note this week um, when someone shared on our website at gowestwood.org forward slash my story. This person said, when our church prayed for who we can give the gift card to, I was immediately impressed with a family that I know. Two days later, I saw this family and found out they were going into extenuating circumstances for the next two weeks. As I talked with the mom and found out their need, it was thrilling to know that I could give her something tangible, to let her know that God cared for her and her family. I told her that our church was very giving and was looking forward to a way to love the community. They had come up with the idea of gift cards to show the love of Jesus and let people know that he cares for their physical needs. As I handed her the gift card, I told her that I had a gift from Jesus for her through our church and that he cares so much for her. She almost started crying. She's a strong lady and she just kept thanking me and telling me that I didn't know how much it meant 
She was so grateful. And each time she thanked me, I was able to tell her there's a gift from Jesus that he loves and cares about them. She also asked me to thank my church on her behalf. This simple act of a gift card for groceries greatly encouraged her and seemed to help give her confidence to face the difficult situation they were, they were going into. What a joy to use a tangible gift to point her to Jesus and remind her that he loves and cares for them. Thank you, Westwood. Just a simple gift card. There's one individual in our church who sent me an email and said he's going out and because of this idea, he's gonna constantly have gift cards in his pocket to be prepared to share, to, hey, to bless someone, to encourage them, but as a means of pointing them to Jesus, the one who loves and cares for all people. Just a great, easy way we can do that. We have a little bit more than 100 gift cards left over that have not been taken yet. And so after the service, when we're dismissed out of here, I wanna encourage you to stop by the information desk and grab one. If you've already gotten one, get another. And let's look for more opportunities in which we can bless our community. Something else that's also cool, how Jesus is on the move all over the world. We as a faith family partner with Dulos Partners. And Dulos helps spread the gospel by funding ministries and missions that are seeking to reach unreached people groups amongst dangerous places. I got an update this week from the ministry That's taking place all throughout the world, but one place was in India. In India, in fact, I've got some pictures I want to show you of three new believers amongst a village in which persecution is high. Their faces have been blurred out in these pictures because to be a follower of Christ in this community is dangerous. Well, Jesus is on the move. He is at work. He is pursuing people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you can be encouraged that even though you may not see it on your social media, you may not see it on the national news, please understand he is at work. He is calling people to himself and he is the one who is seeking to call people to himself. He is encouraging and building faith for all who trust in him. We have seen in Mark chapter 11 where Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding in on a donkey. His entrance was a huge celebration of this humble servant king who's coming into his city. His arrival is so significant that it puts the religious and the political leaders on notice. We saw back in chapter 11, verse 27, where these chief priests, these scribes and elders, they they come at Jesus Well, he defeats their argument, which makes them angry enough that they want to kill him, chapter 12, verse 12. But they feared the crowd, so they leave Jesus and they send the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians come at Jesus. He shuts them down, humbles them. And so they leave. It's now that they tag out and a new group comes in called the Sadducees. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. The scripture says, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind, but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God and no one dared to question him any longer. Jesus is facing wave after wave of religious and political leaders trying to trap him in his words. These leaders who despise one another are actually uniting together for the common goal of discrediting and disgracing Jesus. Notice in the text how Jesus is attacked and how he responds. I want you to see first the confrontation, a foolish hypothetical situation. Jesus was approached by these Sadducees. Now, remember last week I put in your notes the personnel program, wanting you to know who's who and what's what and what do they do. We saw last week that we had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the legalists. They were the ones who meticulously sought to keep Old Testament law. They were theologically conservative, had a high view of scripture, and also came up with their own traditions that they not only expected other people to keep, but also themselves as well. Outwardly, they looked religious, but inwardly, their hearts were far from God. Well, after we met the Pharisees, who were the legalists, we met the Herodians, who were the loyalists. They were loyal to Rome. They were not necessarily committed to the law of God, but more to the law of Rome. They were supporters of Herod the Great. And these Herodians wanted to support and undergird Romans' presence amongst Israel. Now we meet a new group. These are the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the liberals. They are those who are aristocratic they're wealthy, they're urban, they're up-and-comers, and they totally discredit the majority of the Old Testament. In fact, the Sadducees hold that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is the infallible word of God, but they reject Joshua through Malachi. As liberals, they reject the resurrection. They don't believe in angels or demons or the afterlife. Now, the Sadducees, they were the temple business leaders. They were the wealthy ones. So when Jesus came in and started flipping tables and flipping chairs, he was cutting into their profits. And so they approach Jesus while he's there in the temple and they try to discredit him in front of the crowd. 
The Sadducees asked a hypothetical question that was absolutely ridiculous. Looking to trip Jesus up, they concocted the rarest of scenarios. Now, parents, you've probably heard this from your your children or from your grandchildren. They come up with the most over-the-top, cockamamie story. Okay, so so this week, uh, I had a child who said, hey, Dad, what if elephants could talk? What would they say, right? And I was like, like, how do you answer that? Uh, I had another child who said, Dad, what if, this is this week, he said, Dad, what if whatever food you were thinking about, all of a sudden it just appeared? Like, like what would you do? And I was like, buddy, I'd weigh 10,000 pounds is what would happen, right? <laughs> well, the Sadducees here, they come up with this crazy story, this scenario that is way out in left field, Right? The Sadducees, verse 19, they're referencing an Old Testament custom from Deuteronomy 25 that God instituted of that when a a husband dies, his brother bears the responsibility of marrying his wife and seeking to have children. This was God's way of protecting and preserving tribal names, families, and inheritances. This is a way to make sure that family lines were, were uh, in, kept intact, but they were also a way for widows to be cared for. Well, the Sadducees, they take this custom and they create this foolish hypothetical situation of what if? What if the first brother dies and they don't have any children? So the second brother marries that woman and then they don't have any children and then that brother dies and then the third and then they just keep going all the way down to the seventh brother. And then when she dies, then who is she married to? Look at verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. Did you notice their question? In the resurrection, Now, Mark has already told us back in verse 18, they don't believe in the resurrection. So here they're setting up a gotcha question to try and trip up Jesus. Well, Jesus responds with number two, the correction, a guaranteed coming resurrection. Jesus rebukes the Sadducees and says, verse 24, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Boom, top rope. These men were ignorant of the scriptures and they were unable to believe in God's power to raise the dead. The reality is this. Skeptics don't know the scriptures or the power of God. How often do unbelievers make arguments that reveal that they haven't actually read the Bible? One time I was having a conversation with an agnostic in which he said, the Bible's full of so many errors and mistakes and contradictions. And I said, man, I'd love to hear what is one of them. And he said, pie. And I said, pie? He said, the Bible gets the number pie wrong. And if the Bible gets pie wrong, then NASA, when they sent a rocket up to the moon, they would have totally missed it. Now, y'all, this was before I moved to Alabama and I learned the phrase, bless your heart. (laughs) But that would have been the perfect instance to use it, okay? Well, bless your heart. Y'all, the number pi is not in the Bible, okay? I just didn't know if you you knew that or not, okay? Here's the deal. Um, 
I, I had lunch with a guy one time in which he just said, man, there's so many mistakes and contradictions in the Bible. And, and if you're put in that situation, here's what I would encourage you to do. Gently, yet respectfully and lovingly, slide the Bible across the table and say, would you please show me? With humility and a teachable heart and just say, hey, listen, can you help me? Because here's reality. I've been studying the scriptures for more than two decades and I've not found mistakes or contradictions. You see, people reject the Bible not because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Many skeptics don't want to be told that they're wrong. Jesus says in John 3, verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because the deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. You see, the light of God's word shines a spotlight on the wickedness of our hearts. It shows that our hearts are more depraved than we can imagine, and yet the gospel says that we are more loved than we can ever dream, that Jesus came and gave his life for us. This is a Savior who came and entered into our world that we are loved by a God who pursues us in the person and work of his Son. Maybe you're wrestling through doubts. Maybe you've got big questions. Well, I encourage you, don't listen to what other people say about these doubts. Go to the author himself. Open your Bible and read. Study. Because here's what you're gonna find. For so many throughout the thousands of years that the scripture has been put together, many have sought to undermine, discredit, to not submit to the Bible because it has all of these contradictions and so many of them become believers. God takes his word and he uses it as he sees fit. It's almost, I love Spurgeon said it like this. He says, the Bible's like a lion. You don't have to defend it, just let it out of its cage. The scriptures are trustworthy. Well, these skeptical Sadducees, they say, verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they, I'm sorry, Jesus responds and says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, Jesus here is addressing marriage and heaven, okay? Now, let's, let's just clarify. This is not the time of teaching, okay? So if you're, you're a note taker, let's just, like a, a good student, hear me on this. Believers, we will not be married when we get to heaven, Okay. This is why when you gave your vows at the altar to your spouse, you said, until death do us part. Marriage is momentary, and it's only for this life. Marriage was designed by God for, for procreation, for companionship, to display the gospel, to show the world what God's love is like. It's to multiply image bearers. Well, you see, in heaven, there will no longer be exclusive relationships between a husband and a wife which means this, that there will not be sex in heaven. Now, for those of you who are discouraged by such a statement, please understand Christ is better than sex. He's better. In fact, God designed the oneness 
and the intimacy and the pleasure of sex to point you to an even greater oneness and intimacy and pleasure in Christ. It's driving us ultimately to Jesus. Well, Jesus says, verse 25, that we're gonna, we are like angels in heaven, meaning just as angels are not married, so too we will not be married. Just as angels do not die, so too we will not die when we get to heaven. Now, let's be clear. Verse 25 does not mean that humans become angels in heaven. Now, I've heard this said several times, specifically at funerals, where someone will say about the person who has passed away, well, heaven just needed another angel. Though the intention is good, it is not true. See, humans and angels are unique and distinct from one another. We do not become angels when we go to heaven. You see, we are like angels, Jesus says. We are similar to angels in that we do not die. Jesus here also, it's interesting, he's intentionally referencing angels as an example to these Sadducees because they don't believe in angels. He's saying, listen, you guys don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You see, almost all theological errors can be traced back to ignorance of God's word or ignorance of God's power. These Sadducees who are skeptical don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So what does Jesus do? He addresses both. He addresses the ignorance of God's word that they have and the ignorance of God's power. So he points them back to the Pentateuch. Remember? Remember we did the little personnel program? The Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible that they believed, Jesus says, okay, let's take what you consider the infallible word of God, since you reject the rest of the Old Testament, we'll just go to where you do affirm it. Let's go there. How about Exodus chapter three? And then using the scriptures, Jesus here pops the clutch, pops it into high gear and points back to the scriptures, verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read? I love that question. Haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus is saying to these men who are questioning the resurrection, not only is the resurrection true, I'm gonna prove it to you in the scriptures that you are holding on to. They denied the resurrection and Jesus is like, oh really? Then why does God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Not I was, I am their God, meaning they are alive and well right now. So God here is speaking of a personal and a continual covenantal relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though their bodies are physically dead, they are more alive than they have ever been. And so what we see here is that Jesus is pointing to the guarantee of resurrection. Because y'all, God promises by his name that the patriarchs are alive in heaven. And when God makes a promise, 
He keeps it. See, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are more alive now than they have ever been, so too will you be when you trust in Jesus. Just as they are alive in heaven with Christ, so too when you take your last breath, you will be with Christ. You will be more alive than you have ever been. You see, right now, you and I, we walk by faith. There's coming a day in which we will walk by sight. We will see all that we have longed for and we will see Jesus for who he is. We will celebrate with all of the redeemed throughout the ages and we are gonna celebrate all that he's accomplished for us in the gospel. You see, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And if you are in Christ, you are alive both now and forever. He is your God. And your resurrection is as real and as true as Jesus's. Because he lives, so too will you and I. Which means you don't have to be afraid of death. The worst possible thing that could happen to you and I is taken off the table because Jesus is alive. Because he was raised on the third day, you and I can have confidence that when we take our last breath, we are with Christ. That is our hope. That is our joy. You and I have nothing to fear because we have Christ. He has guaranteed our resurrection. Well, these guys, they're badly mistaken, Jesus says. He's like, man, get that false teaching out of here. I reject that. The resurrection is as guaranteed as the one who makes the promise and the Lord is the one who keeps his promise. Thirdly, what we see in the text is we see the command. We see this as an all-encompassing passion. This is what the Lord's calling us to. So the Sadducees, they tag out, okay? And in comes one of the scribes who overhears the debate between Jesus and the Sadducees. And so he asked Jesus, verse 28, which command is the most important of all? Now, this was a popular debate back then between scribes and rabbis. They would often debate over which command is the greatest. So it's been established by the rabbis that there are 613 Old Testament laws we see in the Pentateuch one law for each letter of the 10 commandments. Now of those 613 laws, 248 were positive, meaning where God says, do this. And then you had 365 laws that were negative saying, don't do this. Then within those laws, they decided to break them up into heavy laws versus light laws. Are you as exhausted as I am right now? And what they said was the heavy laws, we'll try to obey these. The light ones, we'll get to you when we get a chance, right? And then they created these traditions because you know what? That's just too burdensome. Let's add more rules, right? That sounds like fun. And so they're adding these traditions as if they were the laws of God and they're trying to obey all of these laws. And the Pharisees, they're seeking to catch Jesus teaching something contrary to scripture. So what does Jesus do? I love this. He quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes Moses. He quotes 
the Shema. Now, the word Shema, it means to listen. It means to hear. Now, devout Jews would quote the Shema twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. Whenever they would gather at the synagogue on the Sabbath, they would begin the worship gathering by quoting the Shema. And the Shema is this, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Jesus here is upholding scripture and pointing to the Shema as the most important command that we are to obey. I broke this down in your notes, the four ways we see here in the text that we're commanded to love God. We see verse that there is a volitional love, okay? This is where you love God with all of your decisions. You love God with your decisions. Verse 30, he uses the word heart. That word for heart there, it has more to do with your identity. It's who you are. The heart is the seat of the will. How you make decisions, what you decide to do, the heart is where your life goes. And you are to love him with all of your heart. This is why Solomon says in Proverbs 4, verse 23, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. You see, love of God must flow from the deepest part of a person's heart. Well, not only is there a volitional love, number two, there's an emotional love. An emotional love. This is where you love God with all of your desires. That word for soul, it has to do with your emotions. This is a love for God that comes out of the, the soul in which you are, have a feeling of a love for God. And we love that. Those are, those are good desires. Those are good feelings in which we overflow emotionally with our love for him. Thirdly, there is a mental love. This is where you love God with all of your thoughts all of your thoughts. Jesus uses the word mind. You see, love of God is not only emotional, it's also cerebral, where you love God with the way that you think, that you love the Lord by how you make not only decisions in your heart, the feelings in your soul, but how you think up here. This is why Paul says it's so important, Philippians 4.8, that whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That you and I, we love God with how we think. Fourthly, we see where Jesus teaches a physical love. It's a love of God with your actions. He uses the word strength. This is where you use your body as an instrument of worship to God. You show your love for God by what you do, how you physically use this temple, this tent that you and I have. It's so temporary that's fading away and yet we, we love him by what we do with our bodies. You see, the command that Jesus is laying out here, y'all, it's so simple. He's being so clear. He's laying out a very holistic approach of love of God. It's an all-encompassing passion for God. You are to love God with all you got, right? And this, this love that you have is a love that is greater than the love you have for your spouse. 
Your love for God is to be greater than your love for your job. Your love for God is greater than your love for your children or your grandchildren or even your own life. The call here is saying, God, you are my supreme treasure. You're the one I desire most. You are the one who satisfies the deepest longings of my heart. You, God, are everything to me. But you see, sin has affected our ability to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sin inhibits me and inhibits you from loving God with all we got. And so the reality is no one can keep this. There's no one who has always loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, save one. Jesus always loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved God perfectly on our behalf because you and I don't. The love that God has for you is that he says, I'm calling you to love me back as imperfect as your love is for me. He delights in seeing us treasure him above all things. But in all the ways that we don't love him in the ways that we should, Jesus modeled it and kept it for us perfectly. But then Jesus took the Pharisees' question a step further. He gives a second greatest commandment. Quoting Leviticus 19, 18, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love of God is the greatest, highest command for all who follow Jesus. We love God with all that we got, but love for God overflows into a love of people. Question, how much do you love God? How you will know is how well you love people. They're connected here. Your love for God overflows into your love for people. 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother and sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. You see, your love for God is revealed by how well you love people. Can you think about, let's dream about this for a minute. What if everybody in the world kept this command, love God and love people? How would things be different? There would be no need for a military. There'd be no more wars. There'd be no need for police officers because the prisons would be empty. There'd be no need to worry about orphan care because every child would be taken care of. There'd be no more having to stand outside of abortion clinics protesting because love of God and love of neighbor leads to life. Think about all that would happen. And Jesus here, he's keeping it so simple, is he not? You got your 613 laws. Jesus says, this is what it's about right here. Love God and love people. Question, how's your love of God? It is revealed in how you love people. It's revealed in how you care, not only for those you like, but those you don't. 
It reveals where your heart is for love of God overflows into a love of neighbor where we see Jesus who perfectly loved his neighbor all the way to the cross. We see the love of God and the love of neighbor meet at Calvary where the blood of Jesus was shed so that through faith in him are we now empowered and given a desire to love him, but out of the overflow of our love for God, it goes right into love of people. You wanna know what it looks like to love people? Look at Jesus. If you wanna know what it looks like to love God? Look at Jesus. This is a savior. This is the one who models it and lives it so that we through him can do the same. The fourth thing we see here in the text is the challenge. We see a personal invitation. Verse 34, Jesus says to this scribe, you're not far from the kingdom. Oh, this is so good. Jesus here is complimenting him. Like, bro, you're almost there. But Jesus is also challenging him. You're not there yet. This is someone whose theology was good and yet he hadn't submitted to Christ yet. He was full of Bible knowledge but he was still outside the kingdom. Question, what about you? Are you full of Bible knowledge and yet you're not in the kingdom? Do you have solid theology and yet your heart has not submitted to the lordship of Christ? You're not far from the kingdom. You can take that two ways. I think Jesus means it both ways. Man, you're so close. And yet you're still so far. You see, it comes down to this. Will you humble yourself and trust in Christ? Will you say, Jesus, you are Lord and King. You are boss and master over all of my life. And I submit to you completely. You see, when you do, there's an even greater truth that we see happening. It's your impact point, and it's this. Jesus has secured your resurrection. Therefore, love him with all you got. Because of Christ and what he did at the cross, he gave his life so that you can be forgiven. He gave his life so that through your faith in him, Your sin and your past and your shame is washed. You're clean, you're pure, you're made holy and blameless in his sight. But Jesus didn't stay dead. For on the third day, he came back to life, defeating death and secured your resurrection through your faith in him. So now, y'all, in light of what Jesus has done for you in the gospel, let's go love him with all we got. He is worthy of our best. Of saying, God, you are my greatest treasure. You are my supreme love. There's no one higher, no one sweeter, no one better than you. Question, how is your love for God? How is your love for people? If you find that your physical, volitional, mental, and emotional love for God is not where it needs to be, it begins right where you are, right there. 
right where you're seated. You humble yourself right here and would you cry out to him and say, Jesus, I believe you're mine. I've got to have you. And because you secured my resurrection, I'm yours. And you're now everything to me. You are my white hot passion. You are the one I desire. And so now my life is no longer mine. It's yours. Make much of yourself through me. And you know what's great? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The same spirit that was at work and on the move in Jesus is at work and on the move in you. And so as followers of Christ, let's give him our all. Let's love him with all we got. 